This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Uh, chapter 15 on transition. Um, Rodney is specifically addressing uh, a modest task of analyzing transition. He's trying to look at it from a general perspective, so sort of a people's perspective on transition, um, rather than this very broad analysis of what it looks like from the perspective of the transfer of technology, economics of transition, cultural change. He's just focusing on what it looks like from below. And he talks about it necessarily as a state of change. It's a link between two historical epochs, um, incorporating elements of both the old and the new, and it's a transitory phase in particular. So I was kind of discussing how it's a dialectical interplay between an older system of capitalism and a newer system of socialism and it necessarily will have elements of both. And he also talks about it as a leap um, in material production, social relations and consciousness, all taking place within a circumscribed period of time. And Rodney's very clear to say that our current transition is one of a transition out of capitalism and imperialism. He talks about proletarian and peasant alliances creating socialist revolutions and therefore the contemporary third world transition has to be unambiguously identified as the transition to socialism. Uh, again, the only transition is to socialism. And he talks about, as we've discussed before, how nationalism and anti-colonialism were able to address the old political superstructure of imperialism, but there was no more unanimity beyond this point. Um, now that there's class conflict within a post-colonial or neo-colonial situation, it's very clear that the only transition possible is that out of socialism, there are, uh, I think this is an important point that some vested interests can necessitate um, basically denying the transition and development necessitate the demise of capitalism and imperialism. And Rodney deems these as pseudo solutions to the problems of development. There is no problematic of transition outside the transition to socialism. And he deems that as a working class solution for a revolutionized society um, that gets rid of the commoditization of labor power and the alienation, the alienation of surplus labor. And then again, so he was discussing how neocolonialism prevents that transition. Um, classic neocolonialism barely alters a political and military dependence on the former colonizing powers. He points to examples such as Malaysia, Zaire, Trinidad and Tobago, and it says that the departure of the colonial administrations has been followed by a rapid reconstitution of the local bourgeois and petty bourgeois. Then he also discusses how the US and Japan and their increasing hegemony um, with as well as these moderate shifts and technology transfers in the international division of labor are all elements of this neocolonial tendency, but the result is all the same, which is capitalist accumulation on a global scale. So Rodney talks about mixed economies and discusses whether they're in transition or not. He says at best it's a logical fallacy when it's not a deliberate smokescreen for bourgeois and petty bourgeois class interests. Transition must necessarily have mixed features of capitalist relics and embryonic socialism, but the latter must exist in a position of dominance for it to be 
a true transformation which would dissolve uh, the last legacies of capitalism. And Rodney has this really interesting section, and this whole uh, chapter is written in 1979. So he has a really set, interesting section where he discusses uh, Ujamaa and his assessment of it, as we were talking about last week. He talks about one of the uh, studies of the Ujamaa village, which basically showed that there were low levels of production and productivity in the agricultural cooperatives or the Ujamaa farms, a stagnation and regression of the cooperative sector in attracting labor, a failure of co-ops to provide a basis for improved agricultural technology and the bureaucratization rather than democratization of decision making. And he concluded that socialist development and transition had failed to get underway in the Tanzanian instance, which is uh, quite a heavy conclusion to come to, but I think is in line with his other conclusions in this chapter around the failure of transition, the failure of mixed economies. And Rodney primarily blames this on the rise of an indigenous bourgeoisie. Um, he talks about imperialism being able to far outlast predictions that it would just dissolve itself inevitably. Um, he discusses the fact that in aiming to modify the international division of labor, these post-colonial societies have simply promoted the indigenous bourgeoisie. Um, when you examine development plans of the great majority of uh, post-colonial states in Africa and the Caribbean, they're simply interested in nurturing domestic private capital and the growth of indigenous capital has been registered in all third world countries, which necessarily is creating a greater popularization of workers and peasants. This may create tensions with respect to established multinational capitalists, but Rodney concludes that the new class in the periphery is in the end contributing to the reproduction of capital and of capitalist social relations, and they've been very much welcomed by institutions such as the World Bank. Rodney has this quote, which I think is really good, where he says, transition is movement in a given direction. It is not a shuttle service. Um, and I think we can interpret that quote to mean it's not necessarily a straight line. Um, it's not just carrying you from one place to another. It has to be a sort of constant back and forth between capitalism and socialism until in the end, there is the triumph of socialism. So it's not a very clear uh, and immediate transformation. And the reason for that is that imperialism is able to be dynamic. It's able to co-opt and accommodate uh, elements of development in a post-colonial context. He talks about how advanced sectors of French capitalism can reconcile with the Algerian experiment. The World Bank is finding it useful to associate with the Tanzanian bourgeoisie. North American mining capital has given the stamp of approval to Guinea. And in his, in his uh, context in Guyana, the American state ignores the application of its own recently designed human rights criteria. The implication is that imperialism has not yet been stretched to the limit of its potential. And he talks about one specific example in this chapter of the Lome Convention. Um, the strains of imperialism in its present stage demand partial change if there is to be a new lease of life. Uh, Marxist and working class intellectuals have long called for revamping the international economic order. And one of the ways in which they attempted to do that was pressing for some short-term agreements and arrangements um, within the strictures of the of the Lome Convention. So to explain that a little bit further, we have a, an end note provided by the editors of the text where they talk about the Lome Agreement uh, in February 1975 in Togo, a, a trade and aid agreement wherein the European Economic Community, so the predecessor to the EU, and 71 African, Caribbean, and Pacific countries 
particularly those formerly colonized by the British, Dutch, Belgian, and French, were allowing duty-free agriculture and mineral exports, $3 billion in aid and investment from the ECC towards those countries. But I think what Rodney is trying to point out there with the failures of the Lomé Convention were that it, it still integrated formerly colonized countries as, as exporters of agricultural and mineral exports of primary products rather than actually helping them develop industry in any way, but it simply attempted to make those uh, have less restrictions on those exports and giving development aid, but of course aid that is being used to uh, continue a dependency. So even these kind of post-colonial free trade agreements are still perpetuating uh, the structure of imperialism and capitalism rather than promoting any kind of real transition. And Rodney concludes with what I think is some very, uh, again, 1979, he's writing this, so he's sort of at the end of a transformation where he's become, uh, I think, a little bit more critical of some of the developments of Marxism throughout Africa. He talks about verbal adherence to Marxism in Congo, Brazzaville, Guinea, Somalia, and Ethiopia has accompanied social developments indistinguishable from those in states where there has been an explicit rejection of the theory of class contradictions for a transition to have validity, it must include the widespread promotion of socialist education without caricature, and it must rest firmly on workers' democracy. And then he discusses the fact that within the imperialist system, the contradictions between imperialism and socialism provide the objective basis for the passage to socialism in dependent capitalist countries. This has to be reiterated and then qualified by the equally important variable of action by class-conscious elements Transition therefore equates with guided transformation. It means social policy directed by the working class in its own interest, broad and, cha and challenging possibilities are opened up by the notion of workers' democracy. So I think these kind of conclusions demonstrate that one, Rodney believed that the contradiction of the time, the primary contradiction was between imperialism and socialism quite clearly, but he didn't necessarily believe that all Marxist states within uh, a post-colonial Marxist capacity had fully addressed the need to develop socialism, to develop workers' democracy, um, but there was still a need to fight for a true transition um, that would inevitably secure the true development of workers' democracy as the, the precondition for socialism to triumph over imperialism. Um, so Chris, do you, are you able to do the next chapter? Uh, yes. Okay, perfect. Uh, the final chapter of this book is about decolonization and what decolonization means in different contexts or in different different stages of uh, of Africa of history of African liberation liberation. Uh, Rodney starts by saying that. When dealing with such a broad topic in, in a short time, one automatically risk, runs the risk of being extremely superficial. Consequently, I will concentrate my attention on one particular hypothesis, attempting to draw certain correlations between colonialism and neocolonialism. I will illustrate the hypothesis with reference primarily to Southern Africa. Next slide. Now, he starts by defining decolonization according to the UN Committee on Decolonization, saying 
If we look at the UN Committee on Decolonization, we find that the committee is concerned that the present time countries such as the Republic of South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, the French and the Cameroon Islands, and the French territories of the Afars and the South of Africa. They are concerned, in other words, with the remnants of formal colonialism. This is what decolonization means in that particular context, to terminate the formal colonial rule of Africa. So during the time period when Wadden was writing this, most of uh, most African countries, most former French and English colonies had attained formal decolonization, formal independence, but only the only countries like South Africa under still under apartheid, Zimbabwe in, under Rhodesia, and and Namibia and, and the French Cameroon Islands were still under the yoke of formal European colonialism. And this definition of decolonization was limited around these countries that were still under formal colonization. What it goes on to say that my proposition is that those African states which are yet to win their independence are carrying through the struggle for independence at a time when other Africans, other people elsewhere are carrying through a struggle against neocolonialism. Its interpretation of the existence of colonialism with the existence of neocolonialism clearly affects the character of decolonization in a number of ways. Basically, what he's saying is that those countries that have those African countries that have already achieved formal decolonization from European, European countries, such as France and, and Britain, are starting to experience trouble in asserting their supposed independence. And this has led them to discover the existence of a deeper form of uh, subordination, which scholars like Rodney term neocolonialism. Uh, next slide. Uh, he focused explicitly on the Portuguese colonies, such as Mozambique, Angola, and Guinea-Bissau, saying that Mars gets important to be the so-called territories of Portuguese Africa in the 1960s. Now in the independent countries of Mozambique, Angola, and Guinea-Bissau, the program for decolonization or liberation of Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau, respectively, was in part dependent upon the pattern already set by independent African countries. There was a yardstick. They would continually indicate that it is more than the need to raise a glass and celebrate the national anthem than that the people of Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau were struggling for. And it seems to me that it is a very important dimension of the evolution of thought and action and organization within the liberated territories of what used to be Portuguese Africa. And you know, like what, what Ronnie is saying is that these former colonies in their struggle for liberation were able to recognize that they would have to go beyond just flag independence, go beyond just political independence, but they would have to completely delink themselves from the established capitalist world system. And that made that struggle very, very different from the early struggles from independence, such as countries like Ghana, Nigeria, or Senegal, uh, which those countries tended to focus more on political independence. Uh, next slide. He goes on to explain about the situation in Zimbabwe. 
stating that I believe in Zimbabwe, the situation is bound to be the same thing. That if for the sake of argument in 1964, when Smith unilaterally declared independence on behalf of the white settlers of Rhodesia, if at that day the British had, had the power and will to organize transition and hand over to Black rule, would have given the government over to ZANU and ZAPU. These are the ZANU and ZAPU are the, where they're anti-colonial and anti-apartheid parties and movements in Zimbabwe at this time. And therefore, to my mind, in 1964, a transition to independence, which we may call decolonization, would have meant something radically different from what decolonization means today in the era of neocolonialism. The existence of neocolonialism is there, is there as a guide which transforms the character of the demands and the expression of those involved as far as decolonization is concerned. So for Zimbabwe to be decolonized today requires, of course, the removal of Smith as they would have required in 1964, but requires more than that. Next slide. It also extends this criticism of traditional concept of decolonization to the existence of US imperialism in post-World War II, in the post-World War II era, stating that one can see, for example, that not only with the end of colonialism has there been a clear rise of the forces such as the multinational corporations acting now as new links, as new forms of guarantee for guaranteeing the export of surplus, but one can see that there has always been an underlying economic partition and a continuing economic repartition which has gone on during the colonial period and is even more marked today. And this again, I believe, gives some new dimensions to what decolonization was mean, because decolonization in the early epoch when dealing with the political power, which had no formal control over one's political system. But decolonization today means going to these economic command centers of the capitalist world system and recognizing that one has to break the particular character of the connections that exist with those command centers and therefore enter the United States of America. The United States has become, has clearly come in a cricket position where it is now the hegemonic within this economic partition of Southern Africa. What he's saying is that the struggle for independence, the true struggle for independence, struggle against against neocolonialism cannot happen without a struggle against American imperialism. America now is the, occupies the role as the, as the top hegemon in the world capitalist system. The center of the capitalist world system is located in the United States. The most aggressive form of imperialism exists as a result of American foreign policy. And therefore, to fight neocolonialism, you have to start by the heart of the center of imperialism and that exists in the United States. So for countries and for movements that are struggling against or struggling for decolonization, they cannot afford to sidestep US imperialism. Next slide. And what does a true decolonization mean for, mean for, for Rodney? He says, one takes a look at the economic structures to recognize that there is no way to speak about decolonization without talking about the recovery of, of, of national resources, for instance. We now therefore have to recognize the continuum of change and recognize that political independence was merely a moment, and perhaps not necessarily a very important moment in a totality of transformation, 
which we might call decolonization, and that the territory which has achieved political independence, even unnecessarily, perhaps lose the terminology of the colony, at the very least we must retain the title of neocolonial until we can see more fundamental changes taking place. So this is basically the, the core of the core arguments that has been present throughout the book, which is that decolonization means delinking from the capitalist world system, seizing control of the means of production, seizing control of national resources, for instance, and that it's not enough for you to achieve political independence. It's not enough for you to elect, just to elect your own leaders or have your own national anthem and a national flag. You also have to be able to chart your own path. And that is impossible for most, for almost all African countries. That is impossible in the position they currently occupy in the world, in the capitalist world system, which is that of a periphery. So, next slide. Uh, some more quotes, which I which I think is um, very very important, is the idea of Africanization. It says, um, whereas the colonization was somehow understood as Africanization, one has not one now has to talk about socialism as an integral part, what a later stage of the very process of decolonization itself. Africanization was uh, an attempt by a lot of African government, African countries, to indigenize the le le levels of power in the country, basically replacing the existing white staff in companies or in, in ministries with Af Africans. And in the early stages of the decolonization movement, this was where a lot of the African upper class or African political class believed to be what decolonization was. But as history has told us, this is not what decolonization is because all that has produced is a new class of dependent, bureaucratic, bourgeois class. Uh, you know, Rodney mentions this uh, in the situation of Ujama, in which there was no, which the, the general public, the general masses, did have access to power, but rather, were dominated by bureaucratic class. And so for what the equalization to happen, the levels of power have to be opened up to the general masses. And the only way this can happen is through a transition to socialism. Yeah, he then presented a, a, a quote from Cabral, which says, um, we regard it as indispensable, as an indispensable prerequisite for national independence that we should have recovery of our national resources. Uh, next slide. Uh, next, to give some specific examples uh, through the, through Frelimo, citizen that to be concrete, let's look at the example of Frelimo. This was a system which did not initially conquer the state power of the Portuguese but I began to create and initiate systems of political participation and political organization and civilian administration in the liberated areas, which at least represented a contact to the alienation, which one would find when you inherit the state structure that was left by the colonialists. So that I can assume that when one inherits the state's structure of colonialism, one merely becomes a tool of that colonialism. 
what he's saying is that this is, I, I, I use this like an example of um, the idea of building dual power to counter the, whether the existing capitalist structures, the existing imperialist structures. And this is what Freddy Modi did in the struggle against Portuguese colonialism by going into those liberated areas, most of them in, 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 in the countryside, in the rural, in rural areas, by opening up power, giving access to power to the, to the masses, to the peasants, to the workers, they were able to build organizations and, and institutions that allowed people to, um, people to really have access to governance. And this is, this is, and this is, and this is the core for me uh, of um, what it means to be a socialist or what it means to be a Marxist, which is distant power to the masses. Uh, next slide. He then proceeds to uh, give an example of what he calls the conservative view, or what we can call the conservative view of decolonization, decolonization which was the prevalent view of a lot of um, of the African political class, stating that to them, if Southern Africa were to become independent in exactly the same way as Zambia or Kenya is independent, then that is good enough. Meaning, if you know. Meaning, if they were, if they were just politically dependent, or people in the African political class, that's good enough. They don't really care much about disrupting uh, capitalist forces. They are okay with maintaining neo-colonialism. He gives an example, saying that um, he spoke, for example, with the representative of the OAU Liberation Committee. This is the Organization of African Unity the precursor to the African Union. He spoke to a representative who said at the time, when it was when it was the Portuguese power to be defeated, is that as far as they were concerned in Mozambique, the task of the Liberation Committee was at an end. He said, we are not concerned with who is going to rule and how they are going to rule. We are only concerned with freedom. That is decolonization. Such officials and such elements of the African ruling class in independent African countries. We prefer to see independence that is merely nominal because the Mozambique that Felimo is striving for is something more than merely nominal independence and threatens not just the Republic of South Africa, but threatens the elite of independent Zambia too. And it threatens Malawi. Uh, the prime example of this view of decolonization as just, you know, political independence is Hastings Banda of Malawi, very, very conservative, very, very pro, was it was very, very pro-Western leader, very also anti-socialist, anti anti-communist. And for them, what decolonization meant for them was just, you know, as long as we get, we, the Africans get to rule, there was no any interrogation of, you know, um, of the existing class contradictions in African society, interrogation or investigation of the peripheral conditions that Africa was is, Africa is subjected to under the capitalist war system, all that, all that mattered for them was political independence. Next slide. Um, so this is, uh, this is a, a news article, news headline of Zambia apologizing to Angola over unit support. So in in in, um, in Angola, UNITA was one of the organizations that was supposedly 
struggling for independence for, from Portugal. They, but they were very, very um, pro-Western, pro-capitalist. This is in contradiction to the, in contrast to the, um, to the MPLA, which was explicitly masked Marxist and had support from the Soviet Union and Cuba. And uh, in, in, in what was actually very interesting, um, UNITA was, was sponsored by the CIA, even had support from the apartheid regime. And um, I suppose, you know, Zambia, being, which is, was supposed to be a, an African nation, would have supposed to support a fellow African nation struggling for independence, chose the side of UNITA, uh, an organization that had the support of imperialists and racists and an apartheid nation in the form of South Africa and Odisha. Um, next slide. And so the conclusion, um, and the conclusion to all this, to the, to the entire book is that the definition of decolonization is itself undergoing transformation. That is, is, that is, is becoming richer and deeper because of who struggles, because of the life experience of Africans in various parts of the continent. And by recognizing that in effect, decolonization is going to be inseparable from a total strategy for liberation, that encompasses the control of the material resources, which encompasses the restructuring of the society, so that those who produce have the principal say in how their wealth is going to be distributed. In essence, decolonization means is a way, decolonization means that the people of a country are involved in the destiny of that country. And for lots of African countries, that is not, that is not a reality. The, the, the policies the, um, of lots of African countries are determined not by Africans, but they're determined in Washington, in London, in Berlin, they're determined in, in, in Paris. And this is a, a lasting effect of colonialism in the form of new colonialism. And the only way that Africans can kind of subvert this this dependent relationship, this unequal relationship, is by a transition of, um, of to socialism, which encompasses uh, the masses' control of material resources and a restructuring of society, uh, which is which this has been the core message of Rodney in decolonial Marxism that it's not just enough for you to for a country in the periphery to assert political independence, for true independence, true freedom, African countries and countries in Latin America and Asia in the global south, true independence means socialism.